Welcome to the Sacred Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Carr. This is a roughly monthly series where we talk to artists, visionaries, and changemakers about how we can collectively create a world of peace, beauty, and justice. This speaker series or podcast is a sister program of my Sacred Wheel Immersion, where students take a vow to live their lives as an act of magic for a year and a day as we follow the rhythms of the Wheel of the Year. In this episode, I'm so excited to be talking to Alexis P. Morgan. Um, And what initially struck me about Alexis's work is a conversation I overheard with her and another podcast uh, presenter, Carmen Spagnola, about being a warrior. This is something that has been a central question in my life for quite a while now. Um, As somebody who feels like they walk the, the path of the healer archetype, I think I'm constantly challenging myself to know when to pick up the tools of the healer and when to pick up the the tools of the warrior. And I really wanted to talk to Alexis about this question. But before we get started, I have a favor to ask. If you're tuning into this podcast on iTunes or Google Play, would you take a second to rate our show and leave us a review so that more people can find and listen to the life-changing work of the artists and visionaries that we feature? Now here is our interview with Alexis. So um, welcome. I'm so excited to be talking to Alexis P. Morgan today, Um, and I'm going to introduce her. So she is, this is how she describes herself, is the pole dancing, sword wheeling, democratic socialist, on the low ho sorceress you've been warned about. She makes her cheddar as a professional writer, facilitator, artist, ritualist, and priestess. Devoted to truth, justice, and liberation, Alexis lives in the spirit of her foremothers before her, unbossed, unbought, unbothered. Thank you for being here, Alexis. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah. So I originally contacted Alexis because I heard another interview she did with Carmen Spaniola where she talks about or described herself as being a warrior. And Alexis, I'd love to start off with just that question of how, what does being a warrior mean to you? Um. So this is a good question, and it's evolved since I spoke with since I spoke with Carmen. Pardon me, yeah. I can't I can't speak today. Um, <laughs> um, so very recently, I want to say actually earlier this month, um, I I said to a friend, um, everyone looks to warriors for strength, forgetting that they are the ones who sustain the most wounds. Mm-hmm. And it kind of struck me when I wrote it, which is why I sort of like put it out into the Facebook universe. Um, but I think a lot of what being a warrior contends in, in our society, in a spiritual context, mm-hmm. is a willingness to be vulnerable about what hurts and to confront what's hurting and what's not functioning head on. Mm. I don't think it has a lot but to do with sort of like these traditional, like aggressive for aggressive sake kind of, uh, you know, archetypes that we have uh, thanks to toxic masculinity. I don't think that's being a warrior yeah. at all. I think being a warrior is, is, is being willing to be vulnerable about our ills 
social ills, what's mm-hmm. not working, yeah. and being being willing and able to stand and fight for one's principles and one sense of integrity, uh, no matter what, and to defend those who are not in a position to take care of themselves or to, you know, defend themselves. And that's different from saviorship, of course. Mm-hmm. But 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 being willing to risk uh, everything in service of one's principles uh, yeah. for me is definitely a warrior. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you focused in on that idea of being vulnerable as part of it, too, because I think for me, one of the big questions that I'm always asking in the world is, are the archetypes of the warrior and the healer diametrically opposed? Like, do they have to be diametrically opposed? And I think you answered one of my long standing questions so beautifully in no, like part of being a warrior is that vulnerability and that desire to see things healed. Yeah. Um, and, and I would answer that, you know, sort of anybody who sort of holds up that, that, kind of dichotomy and that dynamic uh, as being kind of like a black and white thing with a no too. Uh, Just from my own spiritual experience, looking at it from, you know, whether whether you consider it a a literal frame uh, of actual deities and spirits or an archetypal one, it doesn't matter. But if you look at history or if you look at the cases that I'm specifically going to reference because mm-hmm. I'm not an encyclopedia of deities. Um, <laughs> um, so I am a pan-Germanic heathen. Yeah. Uh, that's one of my tasks. Uh, and when you look at, so there are two very specific beings I have in mind. So there's Freya mm-hmm. um, and then there's also a lesser known goddess uh, named Ir. Mm-hmm. And Ir uh, is actually a handmaiden. Uh, sometimes she's confused as being a Valkyrie. It's not entirely clear if she is one. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's basically the equivalent of a, a battlefield surgeon. She knows how to fight, but she also goes into battle and, you know, basically does surgery for, for warriors who have fallen and have been, you know, been struck. Yeah. Uh, so she, she has that sort of Norse northern sentiment of you know valiancy and sort of fighting for for what's right or what's honorable um while at the same time being a heavy duty healer like that is her job mm-hmm. um Freya is very much the same very, Freya is very much a warrior I get a little fussy when people call her a love goddess I just kind of side eye yeah it's like no no, no, that's not particularly accurate, but there's more to, to it. Yes, um, uh, that's not quite what you're thinking, but <laughs> yeah, but okay. Um, so she is a warrior goddess, but she also uh, is the source of a practice called seize or sather, depending on the person you ask. And sather, as well as swahona, um is a type or, or speak on a, um, is magic uh-huh. and it's trans-based magic and it's used for a variety of purposes, but most of them were, were healing based. And that is a gift that she has and she is so powerful. And the women in North society who also practice that magic were considered so powerful that even Odin, who's the all father, the high father, the all father himself mm-hmm. had to go to Freya to learn how to do this uh, because he 
wasn't able to do it for himself, even though he is foremost amongst the gods. So she also has that sort of contrast of she can she can kill you, but she can also heal you and create healing and sort of, you know, bring about this very benefit, beneficial and benefic sort of outcome. And mm-hmm. then last but not least, you have Sekhmet. Uh, mm-hmm. And Sekhmet is uh, she who detests, I believe her epithet is she who detests sin and loves Moth, or Moth, which is sort of truth, justice, liberation, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sekhmet is an extremely powerful warrior goddess who her best known myth is that uh, she popped out of Ra's eyeball, which is kind of grisly and graphic. Yeah. Um, and she went on a killing spree. Yeah. <laughs> and she basically, she basically slaughtered all these people because they, they were being, um, for lack of a better word, sinful. Uh, right. They weren't upholding Ma'a. Uh, and when she was sort of subdued, she became... Uh, you know, a very loving, sensual, uh, healing goddess, uh, mm-hmm. in a sense. Uh, there's some, there's some contention as to whether or not she became Bach or Hathor. It doesn't really matter. She, she has that dichotomy of extremely powerful healer with slaughter, slaughter everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so there's definitely that pattern in there that sort of lays the groundwork to this being a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for highlighting those. I was also thinking as you were talking, you know, in the herbal world, we think a lot about how the the line between medicine and poison is just hair Mm. thin. Sometimes it's a drop or two dose between medicine Mm. and poison too. Um, So always, I think, yeah, you're you're highlighting how those things have always been linked, right? Mm. Um, One of the things... Go ahead. Oh, no. What are you going to say? <laughs> oh, so one of the things I've noticed that you speak a lot about in your writing, uh, most specifically in your latest piece of writing, is the power of naming. Do you see that also as part of your work as a warrior? Uh, yes. Um, our, our current society, uh, or at least the way uh, the society that I've been born into, that we've both kind of been born into, yeah. Uh, is structured is that it operates its violence by robbing us of naming. Yeah. It, it robs us of our ability to stand up and say that thing right there is this. And this thing is wrong because X, Y, Z, and we're not going to take it. And we would prefer ABC or whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. Mm -hmm. There is a certain inherent power to, to name. Yeah. Um, just, just kind of in a spiritual sense, but also like in a socio-political sense. Um, we have ample evidence of that. If you look at studies about racism and sort of racial discrimination against job candidates, uh, ethnic names, names that are considered, you know, you know, unusual or, you know, not quote unquote, not white, mm-hmm. um, you know, are, are discriminated against, uh, in magic names are extremely powerful. There's, this is true in the Wiccan tradition. Yeah. Hit or miss. I'm not a Wiccan anymore. Yeah. Um, I haven't been for over a decade. <laughs> so, so feel free to correct me in the audience if I'm wrong. Um, but part of the tradition of taking on sort of like a magical name is to protect oneself 
uh, from sort of malicious magic and influences because if you have somebody's name, um, you know, it's a link to them and to their their soul and their spirit. Uh, that can be can, that can be used in really beneficial ways. It can also be used in quite deleterious ways too. Yeah. Um. So you know, and when when popes get elected, they change their name. Mm-hmm. When uh, you know, the Dalai Lama reincarnates, he too changes his name. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, there's this long tradition of the spiritual potency there, um, but also political potency. So I do think that being a warrior, specifically in the context of actively asserting one's principles, is about naming a thing a thing. That doesn't mean you're a bully. That doesn't mean you call people names. I don't, I don't call, okay, that's not true. I do call people <laughs> assholes. <laughs> but usually I try to focus on naming behaviors and yeah. what they are. Yeah. And we're seeing that right now. Like there's a whole sort of like huge tidal wave of people naming things, things right now. Absolutely. In Hollywood and, you know, and in the entertainment industry and going, this is abuse. This is discrimination. This is racism. This is sexism. And as a result, we're seeing like all these like formerly seemingly you know, Goliath-like figures tumbling left and right. Harvey mm-hmm. Weinstein just got taken out of the Yeah, because somebody was brave enough to say, "This is abuse. He's an abuser. He he is abusive." Yep. Um. So yeah, I definitely do feel like that's that's part of it, and being brave enough to do it because white supremacy has conditioned us to believe that naming things is wrong. Oh yes. And identifying things is wrong absolutely when it comes to its own nefarious fuckery um, yep. am i allowed to swear no totally <laughs> i probably should ask that sooner no, you're fine <laughs> yeah and i also noticed that like so so part of when i was reading through your writings to prep for this interview again, because I read them all the first time when they came out, but I was just refreshing myself. And one of the things I noticed in particular that I loved about what you do is you bring a very salient critique of the the sort of online world that we're all kind of currently living in. And I want to talk a little bit about that if we can, because I, I feel, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, that the, the, we're living in very special new times. You know, this is, mm-hmm. this is all relatively recent, the sort of hatching of this, this thing we call the interwebs. Um, and as a practitioner of very ancient, ancient magic, I'm curious just to hear your thoughts on how the internet complicates things. Because you bring up some brilliant points in some of your writing, and I just wonder if we could talk more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Do you want me to be more specific? Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> um. Yeah, so weaving through, like I was reading in particular um, the piece you wrote about Gary V, and then your latest piece, the, is it The Faceless? Is that the name of it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is about uh, an interaction you had with an online sort of law of attraction coach, and then also mm-hmm. Kelly Deals, who's a feminist marketing coach. And mm-hmm. it's... 
it's, it's a special arena, right, that we're talking about. And so, so white supremacy is not new. Capitalism isn't new. Kiriarchy isn't new. But this arena that we find ourselves in is a little bit brand new. And I'm wondering if there's ways in which the internet or this sort of world we're living in might be complicating things or simplifying things. What is it making easier for us? What is it making harder for us? I don't, I don't expect you to have a fully fleshed out thoughts on this. I just wonder if there's anything about it that in particular you'd like to say. Yeah. So I'd like to start off with the fact that I just like to uh, lance the common argument that the internet isn't real. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's actually a huge part of why we're having so many issues with the internet and with these spaces is that we're treating it as if it's imaginary and that's not the right. case at all. Right. There are real life consequences. There are real relationships being formed. There are significant political consequences here in the United States. We're learning, we are receiving our medicine about interfering yep. uh, with other countries' elections right now. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, because of the internet, this is a real tangible thing. And I sort of like to think of it as kind of like the astral realm or the other world, however you want to put it, made manifest in, yeah. in a way. Yeah. Uh, this, this sort of plane of existence has always existed in human psyches, in human experience. We've just simply built a manifest container for it in the form of the internet. Mm -hmm. And even before the internet, we still had, uh, we still had several, at least a couple of generations of mass communication, albeit not in the same sort of like accessible democratized form, or at least to the extent uh, that the internet has uh, opened up the possibilities to, for things to be democratized. Mm -hmm. So I feel like killing, killing that assumption first is really important yep. because when you treat something as not real, you treat it as not having consequences. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. Yep. So whole economies have been grown on the back of the internet. Whole industries and new jobs and just all sorts of things mm -hmm. have made, have been made manifest due to the magic of the internet. Um, and that magic is both uh, an archetypal magic in terms of what we think when we hear the internet or when we sort of engage with the archetype that is the internet or in, you know, actual real life practice. So there's that. Um, I think the internet uh, has, it has complicated certain things in mm -hmm. some ways and simplified mm -hmm. things in others. Mm -hmm. I think it's, in one sense, it's a lot easier uh, for us to recognize that we are not alone. Yeah. But on this same hand, it sort of complicated the idea of what loneliness is and what community is. Yeah. And because of uh, the way that the internet is, we're able to have community, healthy community, hopefully, uh, you know, with others that are far away from us. But at the same time, uh, that, that, that's not a replacement for communities supporting one another and coming together and, you know, engaging in, you know, physical person. Mm -hmm. um, so there's sort of that dichotomy going on um, in terms of community. 
Um, I also think that the internet has made it a lot easier for us to get the resources that we need. Yeah. Uh, marginalized communities have started to thrive, I think, an exponentum because of the internet. Because yeah. there's no barriers to us getting, well, there are practical barriers to us getting online. Mm -hmm. um, but those things are relatively easily solved, especially in the United States. I'm not saying that's true, you know, across the globe. Mm -hmm. um, but cell phones and, and data and being able to access the internet from phones, mm -hmm. even in other countries and other parts of the world, uh, has made it very easy to get online and to, to access community and to access resources. So it's much easier for us to come together and mass and fund our artists, fund yeah. our initiatives. I mean, look at Safety Pin Box. Yep. Like, Safety Pin Box wouldn't have been able to exist 10 years ago, right. even. Um, so, you know, in that sense, it's made that far simpler, but then we get into the dynamics of power and the dynamics of, <clears throat> oh my goodness, I almost lost my voice. Um, <laughs> um, you know, power dynamics and, and sort of interacting with one another and sort of measuring and observing, uh, cultural influence and for lack of a better word, damage image and mm -hmm. pain that's, that's sort of created and, and expounded upon because of the internet. Um, I very recently had an exchange with a white woman who literally said to, said to us when we, when we were sort of, it was a group of women of color, people mm -hmm. of color sort of being like, hey, what you're saying right now, no man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And she said, you know, this is damaging. Like, I can't take you seriously. I can't take that seriously. Yeah. And again, it goes back to this mindset of this is not real. This has no real consequences. Right. Um, so, you know, those are the various ways, you know, in which I've, I can see some of like the complications, but also the simplifications. And I feel like as the internet grows and evolves, which we're already starting to see major shifts. I mean, Amazon's trying to get into our houses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We get to pay. We get to pay big corporate big brother two hundred dollars to get into our houses now, right? Right. Um, which is a special type of dystopia if you really think about it. Yep. Um, you know, and then we get to pay two thousand dollars to be in a room with a sort of like a modern day uh, cult leader, even though I'm sure that was never his intention. Mm -hmm. Um. <laughs> You know, and like the Gary V's, I'm sure his people are going <laughs> to be pissed that I said that um, mm -hmm. in the podcast interview. But it's kind of true. He does yeah. kind of curry that response from people. Um, you know, we get to spend $2,000 to get yelled at, right? right. And told we're fucking morons if we, we care too much about, oh, I don't know, very important things like democracy right. <laughs> and, and, and elections on the health of our businesses or our neighbors, which is ironic for a million different reasons, but we yeah. don't have to get into that now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, oh, my gosh. So much to unpack there. I, um, I love that. I, and just initially, just the idea of this lancing this this thought that the internet isn't real and then also linking it in with the astral plane which it, i don't know that it's anything i'd ever connected before but you're totally right of like 
we've already been dealing with this for a while. It's just now it's accessible to everybody and mm -hmm. right there in front of us. Very easy to read. It's become very easy to read, I guess I would mm -hmm. say. The astral plane made simple. Yes. And when you think about sort of what the astral plane is or what that sort of realm of existence is, uh, if you think it, it can be born. Yeah. And the internet is very much the same. Um, like this is the, the one arena where the oversimplification of like the law of attraction, uh, mm -hmm. you know, thoughts becoming things, uh, actually does play out in real time and yeah. <laughs> in, in, in a very sort of like lateral kind of sense. Yeah. Um, where your thoughts really can become things on the internet. Yeah. Uh, so we see like all these like, major like egregores of our psyche and these major archetypes of our psyches sort of rising uh to the surface in order to be uh broken down and reconfigured and you know stripped of uh unhealthy sort of duality mm -hmm. uh, so or you know presented in their extreme duality for us to sort of dissolve. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the emergence of the the extreme right wing politically and spiritually um, is a really great example of that. Like part of that is because this sort of universal psyche that we're all starting to tap into that isn't going away anytime soon, unless of course there's nuclear war. Um, mm -hmm. You know, God forbid, orange tiny hands get to. Mm -hmm his paws on the nuclear code right. um, right. <laughs> um you know the internet is <laughs> yeah um i'm laughing because if i didn't i'd be drinking in a corner right um, yeah <laughs> no, i'm with you <laughs> um but you know like this sort of emergence of like this really extreme sort of set of beliefs and archetypes is surfacing for us to collectively address Mm -hmm. I always laugh when little white ladies on the internet are just like, I don't understand why everybody's so hateful. Where did yeah. you come from? Right. And I'm just like, y'all have been tap dancing this sucker down <laughs> yeah. in your psyches and in yeah. your communities and in your relationships yeah. for over 50 years now. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. What do you think happens when a wound festers? <laughs> right. Like, it gets really, really ugly. Yeah. Um, so we see those types of emergences. Yeah. And then we also, like, kind of on the flip side, and just as dangerous in some ways, we have, like, these really weird, like, gender essentialist kind of topics coming up, like goddesses and, like, mm -hmm. design goddesses and sparkly pink this, that, and the other thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And this sort of like hyper femininity or this hyper masculinity that's also emerging for us mm -hmm. to sort of reckon with. Mm -hmm. And it's all quite interesting and funny and also absurd uh, to really think about it. Like when you really think about what the internet is and how it brings these things to the surface and what yeah. it brings out of people, it is quite absurd. And some people respond by going, oh, that's not real and disconnecting. But that doesn't help anything because it is real and it is here and it is impacting you. And in order to change it, you have to engage with it. That doesn't mean you have to be on all the time. Yeah. Or on the internet all the time. Far from. I think yeah. it's actually quite the opposite. But but completely ignoring it also isn't a solution or or a decision either. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's here. You briefly mentioned law of attraction, and I wonder if we could touch on that too. I feel like I don't, I don't 
I don't, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you were at one point working on a critique piece about it that you flashed just a title mm -hmm. of on your, yeah. your Facebook. Is that, did I get that right? Um, yeah. And there's been a lot of ways in which law of attraction has contributed to a lot of fuckery lately, mm -hmm. or, or maybe it's a misbelief or a misinterpretation of, as you said, can we talk a little bit about that? Can I hear your yeah. some of that? Absolutely. Um, cause you know, I'm a Scorpio and I have extremely strong opinions. So I tell everybody what I think all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's also the, the Leo in my natal chart. Uh -huh. Um, so the long story short, and I'm probably going to be on another podcast soon talking about this, okay. um, is that I think the law of attraction as it's taught by a lot of new AT people, especially new AT white ladies, is a giant pile of flaming trash. Mm -hmm. Um, and just a big ball of hooey. Yeah. And I have multiple reasons for this. First of all, a lot of these little white, uh, I'm going to address cis generally straight or bisexual yeah. white women yeah. of a certain socioeconomic class. I'm talking to y'all, so yeah. this is for you. Um, <laughs> um, my first critique of the law of attraction is that it's, it's, it's cultural appropriation in its worst form. Yeah. It's not even like relatively like lateral, one-dimensional cultural appropriation. It's multi-dimensional and it's nombification. So it's just like stitching together all of these like really disparate, like decontextualized, delineaged, you know, beliefs mm -hmm. um, from a variety of traditions and sort of thought processes, mm -hmm. which is bizarre to sort of watch kind of amble around, like, yep. and try to make sense. Because yep. it doesn't. Because the, the sort of source beliefs of the, the law of attraction, quote unquote, that we believe now have, at their oldest, we can possibly argue a connection uh, with Kabbalah, um, mm -hmm. you know, tentatively, and sort of like the, the thoughts of the cosmology there. But it also has like slapdash like this of Buddhism and Jainism and Hinduism. Mm -hmm. And even then, like, it's like stitching like little nuances from these different traditions about the same sort of topic mm -hmm. together in order to make some sort of like orientalist, colonialist, mishmash, soup of crap. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there's that. Mm -hmm. um, but then in addition to that, the, the modern influences of the law of attraction um, come from the New Age New Thought movement. Yeah. Donald Trump is actually surprised Surprisingly, a huge proponent or his family went to a church that was right. a huge proponent. And if you read some of his thoughts, which is hard to do um, sometimes, um, you know, you can see this sort of attitude reflected in this as well in terms of how he thinks about genetics and family and all this other weird crap. Yeah. But it has like, these roots in, in, new, in, in new thought, which was, was very much influenced by Ayn Rand and sort of like these objectivist libertarian uh white supremacist kind of notions like there's mm -hmm. no escaping the white supremacy that is inherent to this modern hodgepodge yeah concept. you cannot you cannot teach the law of attraction and not, not be subscribing to 
white supremacy in some form or another. I'm sorry. Yep. Like, yep. it is what it is. Yep. Um, and then in addition to that, um, when you look at, and this is, this is the fun part for me of always like discussing this, is that the law of attraction has distinctly occult roots in uh, the work of Helena Blavatsky and mm -hmm. Theosophy. Mm -hmm. And the problem with Theosophy is again, that, that sort of overarching Orientalism and yeah. that colonialist attitude. But there's also like a heady streak of racism right. and uh, anti-Semitism built into there. Yeah. And like the, the magical sort of uh, circuitry, as my, my teacher Josephine McCarthy would say, is defunct. It, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't carry a tune. Um, so, yeah. So, so the contemporary law of attraction is basically built on this wonky energetic foundation. Yeah. The the circuitry is mismatched. Is not only old; it's mismatched mm -hmm. and and jerry rigged in a variety of ways that, mm -hmm. that usually serve the the operator. Yeah. Um, and it's basically fueled by by white supremacy by uh heteronormative standards mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. sexist standards yep you know and all these other gross and antagonistic things so you have as i said you have this zombie yeah that that just kind of ambles around and sometimes because it kind of moves you know it moves well enough mm -hmm. um you know we we get like this this Chaos, chaos everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, people preaching this. What is fundamentally, uh, you know, basically white supremacy and all this other mess in disguise. Yep. And, it, and this is causing danger. Uh, yeah. Ask me how I really feel. Yeah. No, I'm. Thank you. I'm glad. I, I appreciate that. And as you're talking, I'm thinking like so. So going into this, I, the the place I've been revolving around it, I'm like. It's just world killing. Like law of attraction is just kind of world killing in so many ways. But yeah. as you're talking, I'm like, right, of course. Like this is what this is what white people are so good at is taking things out of the cultural context that they come from, where they are anchored in community and reciprocity and a intricate web of, of give and take, taking them and completely mm -hmm. divorcing them from the place where they came from and then calling it mm -hmm. ours and then turning it into a world killer. Like we're really mm -hmm. good at that. Yeah. We're really good at that. And yeah. as you were talking, I was like, Oh yeah. fuck, you're right. Like here's another example of how we've just created this like world eating machine out of this philosophy mm -hmm. that we took from so many different places and just cut off all the parts that were inconvenient to us that actually anchored it into making it a sustaining philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. Like community connection and interdependence, mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things. Um, yeah. And turn it, yeah, into a zombie, a world-eating monster. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because it's, it's, I'm, I'm so glad that you said that about, you know, these other kind of context. Obviously, like, I'm not, I'm not Hindu, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Jainist. I yeah. am simply somebody who's really curious and reads too damn much. Mm -hmm. Is there really such a thing as reading too damn much? I probably I shouldn't say so. that. Um, <laughs> um, but in my own experience of, of sort of like if there was to be an alternative, right, to this 
sort of weird, creepy worldview. Um, First of all, sympathetic magic is a real thing. Um, I think that is another concept that gets rolled into this where people are just go, oh, what about magic? You know, puppet dollies or whatever. And it's just like, well, there's, again, like you're, you're stripping it out of certain context, but yes sympathetic magic is real like that's a that's a fundamental part of magic but yeah. there are other parts to it as well mm-hmm. um that fold into society and the relationships that we have and you know all this other stuff right mm-hmm. um but for me in my magical practice uh my world started opening up and my fortune started opening up really when I went back to the basics and mm-hmm. I started looking at uh, my world from an even more distinctly animist view mm-hmm. where I regarded the spirits of places, including, including my home, yeah. uh, both because, uh, voodoo, New Orleans voodoo, as well as, uh, traditional Haitian voodoo, um, as well as heathenism all have a very animist sort of perspectives on, on life and the world around us. Um, so returning to that sort of animist point of view, whether or not it actually is quote unquote real mm-hmm. is doesn't matter. There's still that sort of mutual respect of everything has an essence, everything has a place, everything has a sacredness, we must treat it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that does wonders for <laughs> for yeah. sort of putting things in perspective. Yeah. Um through so, through so really uh honing and honoring that mindset. I'm treating my relationship with deity, both mm-hmm. in terms of my service to the law, as well as uh, service and relationship uh, with the old gods, uh, which is my term for the Norse Germanic deities, mm-hmm. um, as a relationship and not as a vending machine where yeah. I put in a quarter. <laughs> I right. put in a prayer in a tree right. shop now. Right. <laughs> like, which is which is another mindset that the law of attraction sort of, you know, yep, propagates. But yep. if you put in a quarter, you're always going to get a treat, and yep. that's a load of crap. Like, Pop it in your vortex, <laughs> get a treat. Yeah, yeah, like that's not how this works. Like it, this is not Pavlov. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so looking at it as a relationship. Yeah. Uh, and treating it as a friendship, the way yeah. that I would treat my relationship with my aunties yeah. or with my best friend or with a stranger that I don't know. Like, you're not going to go up to some random ass stranger and be like, give me your wallet. Yeah. You know, like, first of all, that's, that's you know, a crime. Yeah. Um, but, but second of all, it's rude. Yeah. Like, you're not going to go to somebody you don't know and ask for a big favor. No. Yeah. You get to know the person. Mm-hmm. You, you you support them, you know, mm-hmm. you engage in a relationship with not them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, returning to that type of relationship, um, but then also uh, ancestor veneration. Yeah. And looking at, uh, you know, my ancestral relationships and sort of studying family and what I consider to be family and how I engage in community with others. Yeah. Um, and the boundaries that I need around there, uh, which is really heavily influenced by my work and uh, studying with Randy Buckley, who's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and really sort of diving uh, into into depth with that. My ancestors um, have become extremely important to me, uh, especially given my sort of practical family background. Yeah, uh, which I'm sure you've seen me <laughs> seen me write about before. Yeah, can um, we can we just by shifting my yeah. Oh, just to, I wanted to clue in people who are listening who may not know. Can we just briefly outline your, so you're adopted. Sure. It's part yeah. of it. What other important yeah. pieces of that should we just highlight real quick for folks who aren't up to speed? Yes. So the abridged version, um, I am adopted. Uh, as you can see, I, I'm a black woman, surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I have an older brother uh, who is also adopted. Uh, he's not my biological sibling and he is black. Our parents, uh, Hillary and Charlotte, may they both rest in peace, uh, were white. They were more or less a lesbian couple. Uh -huh. um, they were both, they were 45 and 50 when I was adopted. Uh -huh. uh, so in addition to having white lesbian parents in the early 90s yeah. in the Deep South, I also yeah. had older parents who were basically old enough to be my grandparents yeah. <laughs> um, at that point. Um, and my, uh, one of my parents was also mentally ill and physically disabled. So mm -hmm. both of them have physical issues, but one was more disabled than the other. Mm -hmm. um, I had no connection with people of color growing up. Uh, I identify as a black woman, but I'm actually uh, multiracial. I, my, my birth mother was half white and half Salagi or Cherokee. Mm -hmm. um, and from what we know, my, my biological father, whom she did not know, I was a souvenir from Florida, mm -hmm. um, you know, was uh, a biracial black man. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if he was half white and half black or half Hispanic and half black. I really don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but he was definitely biracial. Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't raised around people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, I was raised in predominantly white communities in a predominantly white family. My sibling is really the only per other person of color that I knew on a consistent basis uh, since childhood. Um, and, and it was very hard. So coming to terms with this as an adult and having to sort of reorient myself to relationships with people of color mm -hmm. uh, has been part of my uh, ancestral work and uh, ancestral healing. So that's where that like bit kind of intersects. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for elucidating that for everybody. So we're almost out of time and I mm -hmm. started this series. I wanted to talk to people because I'm invested in seeing a different kind of world be born. And I, in closing, I would just love to ask you if you'd be willing to share any of your thoughts about the kind of world that you want to see be born. Yeah. Um, this is a good question. And one that I've been actively contemplating lately because I have been struggling with my writing um, from the perspective of uh, I don't want people to sort of paint me into a corner as like an anti-racism educator or an anti-curiarchy, whatever, and the mm -hmm. such and such. Mm -hmm. um, that is definitely a dimension of my experience 
by virtue of being a black woman, mm-hmm. um, I am responsible for my for my own liberation uh, mm-hmm. and for the liberation of my brothers and sisters mm-hmm. uh, and and those my very siblings. Pardon, um, but I struggle with um, having a deconstructed lens mm. and wanting. Uh, especially because my, I feel like my spirit in some ways is more nurtured and healed uh, by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, wanting to have a more emergent lens, and I'm yeah. borrowing that term a little bit from Adrienne Marie Brown. Brown. Yeah, awesome. So great. Yes, you should buy her book. Yes, Emergent Strategy available yes. on Amazon. <laughs> yes, it's all in paperback format. Yes. Um, um, so I've been thinking about this a lot. And my focus, and this this comes to me by way of Hari Ziad of Race Bader, um, is by centering Black children yeah. and thinking about the world that I want for them and not really paying too much mind as to whether or not I'm getting it right now for me. Um, mm. So when I think about a future that I want for Black children, um, I want a world in which all black children, regardless of their ability, their gender expression, their gender, their, you know, abil- their physical ability, or, you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. I want them to be able to have a contentful life, yeah, a peaceful life. Mm-hmm. Um, I want them to know what it, what it feels like to be at peace in themselves. Mm-hmm. And their own journey yeah without violent imposition by society without violent imposition from poverty or violent imposition from lack of ability to assert their voice in their communities uh doesn't matter whether or not they're they're involved with the political process it's a whole other topic Mm -hmm. but to be able to feel like they are heard most of the time. Mm. I feel like having it be all of the time is ideal. It's ideal, right? Mm-hmm. But operating in terms of being pragmatic, <laughs> we're probably not going to get there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll get close, but we can get close. Mm-hmm. Um, I want black children to have a planet where regardless of where they are in the world, they can breathe clean air Mm. and have access to clean water Mm -hmm. and somewhere safe to be at night or during the day where their ability to be protected and supported, you know, and, and honored is not contingent upon what can be extracted from them, which is what capitalism is. Capitalism is all about sort of what can we extract from one another, from the planet, from this thing, from that thing. Mm -hmm. Um, That is what I want. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, Yeah. And I feel like that, that vision um, and there's, there's more to it, but you know, we're, we're running short on time here. um, Is absent of duality. 
Mm-hmm. Like it's very non-dual. Mm-hmm. Like it encompasses everything. Mm-hmm. Like in order to have the society, we have to sort of embrace both sides of human nature. Mm-hmm. There, there can be no other ring. You can't, yeah. you know, divorce yourself from your own work and from your own flaws. Right? Yeah. Nobody becomes disposable under those conditions. We hold people accountable, right? Seriously, so right. Um, but but this idea of disposability, uh, you know, isn't isn't real. And one of the essays that I wrote um, was about was after a Charlottesville, mm-hmm. um, which was personally very shaking for me because my best friend was there and mm. was on the street uh, where the car ran through yeah. uh, the crowd. She, yep. they, they were there literally 15 minutes before that car ran through the crowd. So Whoa. that Whoa. made me feel awful. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That made me feel all sorts of feels. I'm um, sure. <laughs> by proxy. Um, you know, yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about and that I'm still sort of wrestling with is like this, the the necessity or the existence of violence and mm-hmm. sort of how do we hold a non-dual perspective on on violence and where does violence fit uh you know or where does aggression or aggressive action fit uh in this ideal society mm-hmm. and i sort of came to the conclusion that if we operated from you know this vision that i've just laid out that mm-hmm. that violence would become uh a sacred but terrible thing mm. where violence is the last resort. And when yeah. you have to resort to violence, uh, we do so with great mourning. Yeah. Um, and with great sort of respect for the terrible power that, that, that violent aggression kind of action is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I think it's okay to punch Nazis. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> there's no reasoning with fascism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, they're, like you don't dispose of the humans, but you do dispose of the idea, and mm-hmm. you do so, you know, at all costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, and I feel like if we can sort of operate from both of those perspectives of you know this thing that we're doing right now in terms of you know what feels like very violently opposing certain ideas, mm-hmm. um, and and not being willing to compromise. On, on those things and fighting very hard for those things mm-hmm. um, while also simultaneously not disposing of people just yeah. because we've beaten you in battle doesn't mean that we dispose of you yeah um you know or you know whatever it might be that truth and reconciliation takes place after after war happens mm-hmm. um that we can not only sort of uh accept uh and manage and, and honor, uh, you know, this unhelpful, usually unhelpful, you know, or natural sort of thing that is aggression and violence or whatever in society, mm-hmm. in ourselves, these unpleasant things, while also minimizing uh, their, their role in our day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. We don't live in a society that is consistently and constantly violent for no fucking purpose at or all. Or by design uh, violent. Or by design. Yeah. 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 You've brought us full Um, circle talking about being a warrior again. um, Yeah. 
I think it was Sun Tzu who said that the best warriors never go into battle. Mm. I am probably like bastardizing that quote. Mm. <laughs> <the hell>? mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I think that's very true. I think being a successful warrior is, is about strategy. Again, yeah. I'm going to, to pitch. I'm not, I'm not paid to do this, but I'm just going to pitch Atrian's book again. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, it's about that strategy and sort of yeah. learning how to think about these things yeah. in terms of interlocking. Yeah, it's so, such a good book. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle of it right now. It's so good. So pitch away. Yeah, it's possible. We'll put links yeah. to that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Thank you so much. For having this chat with me oh absolutely yeah <laughs> such a pleasure uh yeah i i love getting to talk to people and you know pontificate yeah. <laughs> like my my inner leo my inner leo parts are quite pleased with themselves right now oh good uh, getting to be the center of attention and, and sort of you know strut my my opinions all over the internet yeah so, so after we after we turn off the recording i'm gonna get from you the so make sure i have all the the links you provided um uh, for the resources, mm -hmm. for things you talked about, people you mentioned, I'm going to just double check with you. But before we go from the recorded version, I would love it if you would just let people know how they can find you. Uh, yeah, so I am all over the internet mm -hmm. and simultaneously sometimes hard to find. Mm -hmm. um, so you can find me on my website at thechurchofstfelicia.com. Okay. And St. Saint is spelled out, and Felicia is S E L I C I A. Okay. Uh, so that's super snazzy. Uh, you can also find me on Patreon um, at patreon.com slash, I believe it's the, the Church of Saint Felicia as well. Wait, no, no, it's not. I should know my own Patreon. <laughs> we'll get um, it. <laughs> Yeah, it's Patreon. I'm I'm also on Patreon um, at patreon.com slash alxpmorgan. Okay. Um, you can follow me on Facebook. I do a lot of writing on my personal profile. I'm trying to get better about posting it to my Facebook business page, but yeah. old habits they yeah. die hard. Yeah. Um, and you can also follow me on Medium at medium.com slash at alxpmorgan. Uh, and you'll find like all of my heavy duty uh, essays and various articles there too. So that's me. Thank you. <laughs>So this has been another episode of the Sacred Wheel podcast. Such a lot of great information and food for thought from the interview with Alexis. You can find links to all the resources that she mentioned in the show notes and also at my website, alisoncar.net. That's A-L-L-I-S-O-N-C-A-R-R.net. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode, and if I can plug one more time, if you're listening on iTunes or Google Play, go ahead and give us a rating or a review so that more people can find Alexis's great work and the work of our other guests um, can get out into the world. Thanks so much for joining us.